I heard a song that I, it really sparked uh, my curiosity and I turned it up in my truck, sang along as best I could as I got familiar with it uh, through the passing weeks. And it was a song by a young lady who just the lyrics were so powerful, a country song by a gal named Jessica Andrews. Sorry to go country on you. We'll, we'll pick it up from here. Uh, these were the lyrics. Some of you may recall this long time ago. If I live to be 100 and never see the seven wonders, that'll be all right. If I don't make it to the big leagues, if I never win a Grammy starring tonight on CBS, I'm going to be just fine because I know exactly who I am. I am Rosemary's granddaughter, the spitting image of my father. And when the day is done, my mom is still my biggest fan. Sometimes I'm clueless and I'm clumsy, but I've got friends who love me and they know just where I stand. It's all a part of me and that's who I am. So when I make a big mistake, when I fall flat on my face, I know I'll be all right. Should my tender heart be broken, I will cry those teardrops knowing I will be just fine. How powerful is this? Because nothing changes who I am. Now, a catchy song. Some of you nod your head if you remember that, so I'm not alone uh, naked up here. But yeah, a good song by some of us, okay, right? But how powerful to think. And I remember being struck by that because that's a lesson that some of us never learn. But to have a sense that if this wasn't just a clever line in a song, but if it was a part of her, if it was, became a part of her experience, her personal knowledge and her awareness, how freeing it is. An old guy who couldn't sing, a theologian named Calvin Miller said that for many people, life's hell is never knowing who they are. Romans 3, I'm sorry, Romans 12, 3. To the church at Rome and to you today, Paul wrote this, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Now, it's a warning. Be careful. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given you. It seems Paul would say that honesty is the key to identity. And for some of us, we have an inflated sense of who we are. Story I read about recently, the governor of Kentucky, the governor prior to this one, he was at a county fair, a political rally, just think Neshoba County Fair. That was sort of the atmosphere, I'm sure, not as hot probably. And they are there, and the governor, there, there's a dinner, and at the dinner there was a one piece of chicken rule. You ever been there? Like one piece of chicken per person. And the governor walked up to the line, he wanted his second piece of chicken, and uh, apparently his plan was being thwarted, and he told her, hey... Do you, I'm hungry, I want another piece of chicken. Do you know who I am? I'm the governor. And she said back to him, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. <laughs> it's easy for us with wealth, power, position, privilege, entitlement to inflate our sense of well-being. Paul would say, no, your identity is in Christ. Don't do that. That's what the world does. Don't do that. And some of us deflate our sense of self-worth and identity. We think that we are what we cannot overcome. I'm the rough childhood, the ugly divorce, the suffocating addiction. I'm the unrelenting loneliness. And some people, many people live and their life's hell is never knowing who they are. In Ephesians, we're introduced as people in Christ, if you're in Christ. And the idea there is that you would be in Christ, that you would know your identity, you would know who you are. There's two ways to live. You know, preachers say things like this, but this is so true. Like it, it affects my parenting. It affects me being a child of God. It affects uh, the way I want to lead our church into the future. There's two ways to live. You can live for an identity or you can live from an identity. Now think about it. First of all, you need to understand it intellectually. 
but how powerful and how freeing. What a vastly different way. You can live for an identity or you can live from an identity. If you live for an identity, the goal there is to achieve. I must achieve in order to be somebody. This, this little gal singing that country song in the late 90s had it differently. Hey, no matter what happens, it's not going to affect who I am because I know who I am. Susan used to laugh at me. I'd walk around the house singing, I'm Rosemary's granddaughter. She would look at me really strange. But do you know, do you know who you are? Do you know who you belong to? Are you living for an identity to achieve? Or are you living from an identity? You have received it and nothing can change that. Ephesians tells us, it tells us that we're cherished and that we're chosen. It, it starts the letter, Paul starts the letter with grace and peace to the saints. And he says that before the foundation of the world, you've been predestined, you've been adopted to be. We've been called to be his sons and daughters. He values us. He blesses us. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. You may love in scarcity. You may withhold your affection in your family, but God's family, he loves us lavishly and calls us to do the same. We'll look in a moment in Ephesians 2. He's rich in mercy. It tells us in Ephesians 1, it gives us a sense of identity that we can live from that we're valued and chosen and blessed and adopted and redeemed and it says the, that the trinity father son the triune god the sovereign transcendent god is involved in your salvation the father planned it before the beginning of time the son accomplished it and the spirit seals it he gives us a guarantee in ephesians 1 13 and 14 a guarantee now we make promises all the time don't we, we watch commercials and there's claims and all kind of stuff can you believe it can you believe this claim? And God is saying, here's a guarantee that you can count on and you are sealed to the day of redemption. That is the identity that he calls us to walk in. Now he uses a, a fun expression. Um, he uses this fun expression in Ephesians 1. He says that it's a prayer that God would open the eyes of our heart. I've always valued that. It, the Greeks had two words for know, to know. Uh, one is oida, and oida is facts, it's data, just the facts, ma'am, just tell me the facts. Oida, oida is, it is, uh, Jackson is the capital of Mississippi. The square root of 256 is 16. Uh, if you want to convert Fahrenheit to Celsius, you subtract 32 and divide by 1.8. These are just facts. That's oida. But the second Greek word is gnosko, and gnosko is deeper and better and richer than oida. I can know that Krispy Kreme donuts are made of sugar and baby angel nectar. <laughs> I can know that. But then, that's oida. But then I can gnosko, I can put it in my mouth. You can know about the mechanics of the engineering components of a parachute and how it works and when you need to pull it and, and all of that. You can know about that. Oida, or you can gnosko, you can jump out of a plane with a parachute. Uh, three times in my life, three of the greatest days of my life, I knew that my wife was about to give birth, but oida, but that's different than gnosko, when I held that new life, mine, in my arms. And I think that's what, that's the word here, that's that we would know, that you would be enlightened, that you would really know who you are, and hear me now, it would affect your experience. It's gnosko. It is, it's a part of who you are. You taste it and you feel it and you know it in a different way. 
And that's this idea of our identity. In week one, we said from Ephesians 1, I am chosen. In week two, we, last week, we looked at I'm strong. And ironically, I wasn't strong enough to be here. I was sick and weak. And so Nick was strong enough to preach I'm strong. And today we're looking at this reality of I'm alive. I'm alive. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, you won't find better scripture or better truth in all the world. Here we are, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. If you want to open your Bibles, I will not give you time. I'm just running ahead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice the tenses here, and the Bible tenses are very important. You were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Here's your transition. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved through faith, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, here we go, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in in him. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, the first three verses are a diagnosis, and the next seven verses present to us the cure. So I ask you, 11 o'clock, 9.30 was on point, what is the diagnosis, church? In verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2, talk to me out loud. What's the diagnosis that we've been given? We're dead. We're dead. We're dead. These verses don't flatter us. When you go to a doctor and you suspect something's wrong, you suspect something's very wrong, your symptoms are real, your pain is acute, you go to the doctor, do you want to be flattered or do you want the truth? So you see, it can be hurtful without being harmful. A diagnosis is that. In fact, it's hurtful to get news that's not good, but it's not harmful because it's the thing, the only thing that could lead to your health, to your healing. And in this diagnosis, we are dead. Some of you Saints fans, we had them in the 930, you protested the Super Bowl, so maybe you didn't see some of the commercials. And this is the one that impacted me uh, the most. Our coach is doing a lot of elite athletes, and they're very talented. And they get a lot of attention. But you guys are elite as well. You don't do it for contracts. You don't do it for the fame. You know, and you're not celebrities. You get called away from your families constantly. And they never know if you're coming back home. You guys are truly heroes. You may not know this, but in 2005, I was in a horrible car accident, and they told me that I flew 45 feet in the air. I promise you I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the first response. Hi, coach. My name is Jim Rose. It's my partner, Craig Kelly. We're the first two first responders on the team. Coach, my name is Scotty Lasso. I was the paramedic that evening with Engineer Dave Mendoza. Hi, Coach. I'm off the door, but no, we showed up that night. It was there. I never heard 
Sermon today sponsored by Verizon and uh, <laughs> lining my pockets a little bit while I preach. But hey, here's a man you saw. That's not an actor. Everybody gets that, right? Those, those weren't actors. That just, just wrecked me. And here's a man who knew he needed to be saved. But let me, let me take it a step beyond that because that's what Paul does. Paul said, you're not partially dead. You're not probably dead. You're not sort of dead. Listen, church, you're not theoretically dead. You're dead. So I would say to you, and it's where I want Fondren Church to stand, we're not here, Mike, we, like don't juice it up any, uh, don't doctor it up, don't make it cute, don't pretend like you're in an ocean kind of swimming with dolphins and stuff around you and Jesus throws you a life raft. No, you're dead, you're face down. And the primary characteristic of a dead person is they're unresponsive. They're unresponsive and they need an outside source to save them. And that is the diagnosis, we are dead. And what does it say? You're talking back to me today. We are dead what? Can you, you remember? If your Bible is open, you have a distinct advantage. We're dead what? In our, in tra- in our transgressions, okay? In our, we're dead in our sin. Dead in our sin. And we make sin a cute word today. You know, you can find sin on dessert menus at nice restaurants. Uh, one of you gave Susan and I a gift card to a nice restaurant. I just want to encourage you as a church to do that. That's such a, <laughs> such a great thing that you can do for your pastor and his wife. And we, we noticed on the dessert menu idea that there, was, uh, uh, there were descriptions of certain desserts with the words sin and decadent, and we make it cute. But it's not. It's not cute. I joined the board of a new organization called Mississippians Against Human Trafficking. And I sat last week around a circle of women and men who are rolling up their sleeves and wanting to do something about a problem that's all around us. And I sat next to the Pearl Police Chief and I heard story after story. And I just, from some of these women, I thought, you know, I'm not going to drive by a hotel again the same. I'm not going to go into Walmart again the same. And this is a real problem, and sin is real, and there are victims, and it's nothing cute. Look at me, it's nothing cute. And we often think, here's what we do because we're church people. Are you a church person? Do you come to church a lot? I'm glad you do. But here's a fault that church people have. I work for a church, so you know I got the problem. We look and we think that sin is out there. And we need to be protected. We put locks on our doors and filters on our internet because evil is out there and we need to protect ourselves from out there. But listen, it says you were dead in your sin. Nothing about they, nothing about liberals. That's ah, a liberal, that's ah, a conservative. Ah, it's them over there, it's the left, it's the right, it's Senator Warren, it's Donald Trump. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. I want you this morning to think about, I've thought about this a lot, but to think about sin not so much as action, but as a condition. Certainly there are actions of sin, but there is a, there's a condition of sin. Several years ago, I, I helped someone um, in the neighborhood uh, cut down some trees and shrubs and bushes and all, and it was a beautiful day, and there were, we had the equipment, the tools and everything, and gloves on, and there were small gloves, and we, 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 we were cutting and just going to town. And I started feeling an itch and a couple of days later I was diagnosed with poison ivy 
and it got on all over my arms and my, my abdomen, my six pack, everything was just right here. Uh, didn't want to flash like I normally do. So just all over, it was ugly. Put some ugly on the, on the beauty. And that weekend, I remember this. I remember it was, a, it was a warm day and the air was struggling in here and I wore a long sleeve shirt. I was all the way down and all of y'all had on short sleeve shirts. But during that time, some of you found out about my my poison ivy, but listen, no one said or none of you would say, hey, Robert, stop doing poison ivy. Now, I know I'm being silly, but I want you to think with me for a second. This is theological and it's practical. It's heavy and deep. Like, I want you to know this. You wouldn't say stop doing poison ivy because that doesn't make sense because I had, it was too late. I had a condition of poison ivy. Were there resultant actions? Yes, there was itching and irritability and cover-up and all that. But I had a condition of poison ivy. And look, this, there's, there's just something in us that wants to push back. But I don't want to water anything down here. Sin is a condition. If you, want, if you want to meet about this, we can get philosophical. We can have coffee and talk. But look, there is a condition that you're born into called sin. It's a condition you're born into and you need rescuing from. That's the diagnosis, and it's real. Scripture tells us. Now, you, you may have read Ephesians 2. If you're, it's open in front of you, you can look now, but you see that there's some phrases that Paul uses here that may seem uh, unsightly to you or offensive to you. Children of wrath and sons of disobedience. Like, okay, Paul, come on now. Are you jacked up on Red Bull, caffeinated here? I mean, why, why the overspeak? And I would say to you, it's not overspeak. You may have heard me preach before. You don't have love if you don't have wrath. Again, cup of coffee, we can get philosophical, but you don't have love if you don't have wrath. In fact, the God of love, God is love. Scripture never says God is wrath. It says God is love. But a God of love has wrath. In fact, Proverbs 6 says God hates. There are six things, yea, seven things that God hates. He hates haughty eyes and a lying tongue and hands that are quick to shed innocent blood. He hates a heart that schemes wicked things and that feet that run quickly to evil. He hates it when we a false witness pours out lies. He hates it when a person sows discord and causes dissension and trouble in a community. And can I tell you, the older I get, the more I hate that myself. The more I hate it. Listen, I, I'm loving some first responders. That, that commercial, I've watched it three times privately and cried three times. Man, but in a way, my job, like some of your jobs, it puts me on the front lines. Recently, I went to visit a man in prison whose parents wanted me to go see him. And years ago, he began to scheme. His heart schemed evil, wicked things, and he would put drugs in alcohol for sexual conquest. And he'll be behind bars for a long, long time. And you don't have love without wrath. And we, we need to realize that sin is real, guys, and it is a big deal. In order for us to appreciate grace, we need to see where sin, its effects on us and others and where it takes us. And there are things, hey, in love, I tell you, there are things that God hates. To hear these stories of things that are happening in Jackson and for us to innocently say, oh, I'm just, there's no victims in this. And this gift that God gives us has been distorted time and time again and there are victims all around us. Sin is very real. 
And Paul would go on to say, again, it doesn't tickle our ears this morning. That's not this portion of the sermon because we're in the diagnosis part. And in the diagnosis part, it says we're dead. We're dead to our sin and we have an enemy that is active. Now, we will get into this in chapter 6. So weeks from now, we will look at spiritual warfare and putting on the armor of God. We'll look at the mystical things, the principalities and powers and spirits of the air. But I'm telling you, I believe in it. I was reading a Yale historian this week who believes in it and looking at our world and the diabolical things that are happening and we are in a battle. Are we ready for it? And the enemy is described in Scripture as not a guy, a cute guy that's playing with you and trying to punk you like Ashton Kutcher. This isn't a guy in a pitchfork. This isn't a cute cartoon character. This is real. In fact, Jesus described him in John 8 as the father of lies. John would later say in Revelation 12 that he's the accuser of the brethren. John, in John's gospel, in John 14, it says he's the ruler of the world. Jesus would say in John 10 that he comes, he's a thief and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 6 that he puffs up church leaders so that we would fall. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for your leaders here? It says that he tempts us with illicit sex, 1 Corinthians 7. It says he tries to thwart our plans. It says in Romans 16, 20 that he causes division vision among the church and the saints. He is active. It says, and this is quite a contrast, it shows you how multifaceted and mystical our enemy is, but it says in 2 Corinthians 4 that he's disguised as an angel of light. And then in 1 Peter 5, it tells us that he is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Let's say that you are at the zoo. Let's say, let's make it good. You're at the San Diego Zoo, because that's the best zoo. So you're at the San Diego Zoo. You're with somebody that you love. It's a good day. It's a good day until you hear someone over the loudspeaker give a public service announcement that says, there's a roaring lion on the loose seeking whom he may devour. Now, if you come to Fondren Church, you'll know that that's 1 Peter 5, right? So you're like, hey, that's a Bible verse, but wait, is there a lion? Yeah, there's a lion. So you want to, you, you would want, and they, they say on the loudspeaker, uh, remain calm and make your way to the exits. Um, I'm running. I'm running over you, okay? I don't care how frail and feeble you are, what age you are, if I should show you respect, right? Women, children, older people, I'm running over you. Because why? I said it. There's a, they said it. There's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, if you're in Christ, I just want to say, you can't afford to be spiritually coasting. Because there's an enemy that is active. No passive. Now, if you want to get cute with the, well, he's disguised as an angel of light, you know, that's not a cute thing because he's roaring like a lion. There are a couple of tools that the enemy uses. I prayed over some friends after the first service regarding this, but two tools of our enemy. One is arrogance. And the heart of the arrogance, you may not boast this ever verbally, but the heart of the arrogance says, I don't need God. I don't need God. If you're a note taker, I don't have the passage, but write Isaiah 14. Write Isaiah 14 down, verses 13 and 14. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. And it tells us the origins of our spiritual enemy. And it describes in these two verses, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the enemy was there next to God within the heavenly realm that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. And he says there, the enemy made five I will statements. Five I will statements. I will ascend to the throne. I will become great. I will be like God. I will, I will, I will. 
And that's the heart of the arrogant. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, would say in James chapter 4, don't even talk about tomorrow. Don't say what you're going to do because you end up boasting about what you're going to do. I will do it. And you, and you need to be careful because to quote the theologian Garth Brooks, tomorrow, you don't know what it holds. Tomorrow may never come. You just don't know. And there's arrogance in us. I will, I will. And we begin to spiritually coast and we begin to think that what God says is true, is true for them, but not for me. Let me just tell you today, you need a Sabbath. You need a Sabbath because God said it. You need a day of the week. Um, My wife's staring at me with judgment right now. But we all need a day of the week where we say, okay, God, you got this. And you go Chick-fil-A and you just rest. And you could be doing something else. You may be churning and earning and making a living, right? And prospering. But God says you need to rest. You need to rest. You need to give generously. You need to say, God, this isn't your money. My money, it's your money. And I give it to you. And I want to listen to what you say about my money. You need to submit areas of your life. And you need to get out of rows and into circles and have fellowship with one another The arrogant say, I don't need God. I don't need to do what he says. I will, I will, I will. That goes to the heart of our spiritual enemy. Another tool that he uses is anxiety. I'm not good enough. Note taker, write down Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. It's a life first for me. Prayer, search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Know my anxious thoughts. Search me because there's anxiety in my heart and I need you because of it. Every state has a department of transportation. Every department of transportation knows the infrastructure. They know about the roads and bridges and tunnels and about appropriations and improvements and complaints and such and such. And most major cities, the Department of Transportation, they know, I guess for Jackson, it's the stack. But there are some cities that have the stack on steroids. Here's a picture of what one city calls Spaghetti Junction. This is a... yeah. You live there. Yeah. Where do you live? Yeah. There you go. (laughs) This, uh, when I say intersection, it's not just a traffic light and a turn lane. It's all these overpasses and stuff. And it is a monstrosity of 20th century engineering. And many a person... Many a person will drive over, under, and through a what some call a spaghetti junction. And they will drive over, under, and through with a smile on their face and a song in their heart only an hour or two later to have a vision of moving out to the country and living on a farm, right? It's hard. The traffic snarl, the congestion, the exhaust. My brother knows what we're talking about and most many of you do. Hey, listen to me. Your heart is a hub, and everything passes through it. Every good thing, every bad thing, it passes right here. You may spend time cosmetically on your outward appearance. You go, girl, you're looking good. But you are your heart. You are your soul. You have a center and a core. And for some of us, it's a tool of the enemy and it is weighed down with anxiety. Do you know the English word for anxiety is to be choked? And the enemy uses that as a tool. In my small group, Susan, I have a guy who, who does 
100-mile trail runs. How stupid is that? <laughs> His name is Ed. And I texted him this week when I saw what happened at Horsetooth outside of Fort Collins, Colorado, when a hiker was out on a, a canyon road and a mountain lion attacked him. Do y'all know this story? And what did he do? He ran a long way, but he, when the mountain lion came to him, he choked it out, dude. Like he killed the mountain lion. Like that's a good day. Like that's, I mean, that's <laughs> like I'm going, I'm going to the bar that later that night. I'm going to the watering hole or back to the, I mean, I, I want to be around people. Like that's a good, that's a good Instagram post. Like he choked out, he choked out the mountain lion. Granted, it was a juvenile mountain lion, but I wouldn't have told people it was juvenile. I'd be like, hey, park ranger, could you just say mountain lion? Don't, don't put juvenile, because that, they may think baby mountain lion. But just say mountain lion. But he choked that thing out, and that's the very word that English-speaking people use for the word anxiety. And that heart that's a hub is getting choked out, and the enemy uses that. Through the discouragement and through when you want to go to bed tonight and put your head on a soft pillow, you're, you struggle to do it. In fact, you can't do it without Walgreens or CVS or Kroger or somewhere. This is a tool of the enemy. All right, if you're with me, we'll move fast as we finish. So what's the diagnosis? Talk to me. We're dead. We're dead what? In sin. Is sin real? Is it a big deal? You guys are just lying to me now, just so I'll move on. All right, here is the cure. The cure is, it starts with but God, but God, rich in mercy. He lavished on us His grace. Who needs grace? Who needs it today, right? Just the really bad people, huh? Like the people out there. Who needs it? Everyone. Everyone needs it. I heard a young person just say that out loud. Everybody needs it, old and young and everybody. We all need grace. Here's the beautiful thing about it. Grace, I want to say two quick things. Grace lifts us. Remember, Paul starts his letter, grace and peace. God is full of it for us. And grace, grace lifts us up. Many years ago, we were, uh, when, we, when we had three kids now, we were all younger and only had two kids. West dog, Wesley wasn't born yet. We had RJ and Haley and, of course, my wife Susan. And they were, we were on a long road trip and they were sleeping in the car. The only time, I think, in our history Susan has slept while I've been driving. Uh, she's got uh, trust issues with, uh, with my driving for good reason. But she, even she's asleep on this long road trip. And it was, just, it was just that. It was arduous. It was long. And we get out and we're walking into a hotel. We grab the bags. And I'm trying to be chivalrous and helpful as a parent. I'm grabbing most of the bags. And RJ, who's a strapping, handsome 20-year-old sophomore in college, was four years old. And you know about four-year-old boys, right? They're, they insist to carry their own weight, their own bag. They want to impress you with their strength. And as we got out of the car late one night, heading, to the parking, heading through the parking lot to the hotel door, I noticed that he, he put the strap on his shoulder, and it was just too much for him. And I looked back, and he was struggling. And I walked back to him and said, Hey, bud, can I, can I carry that for you? And he was so tired, he couldn't even verbally get out the words. He just nodded. And I, I put that bag, his bag, on mine and began to walk ahead. And I looked back at him. He's 6'2 now, but he was like this tall, just standing in the middle of the parking lot, and he just stopped put his head down and I walked back to him said can I carry you bud and I lifted him up and you see we live in a way where we want to exert exert and assert who we are and what we can do to impress people but my four-year-old son on that night 
It was when he stopped and when he knew and admitted that he had a need, he found grace to not only carry his bag, but to lift him as well, to carry him. And I can't help but look at our world as a mild theologian, as a little bit of a philosopher, as a, with a pastor's heart. And I'm telling you, as a, a semi-student of our culture, we're becoming more advanced and more intelligent, and we've made great scientific and medical and uh, engineering progress. And we have new and sophisticated ways to share and process and assimilate and exchange information. But we have done nothing to alter the human heart. And a heart that is weighed down, a heart that's filled with arrogance or anxiety or some combination, needs grace. It needs someone to rescue us. And for those in Christ, what I'm finding is that my giftedness has a place and can be used. But it's in the moments when I stop and look to my Father and say, I cannot do this without you. I need you to carry this weight. And God, Father, I need you to carry me. There's a, a man named Dan Fairley, and Dan is um, a artist. And D Dan is an artist that got some fame recently. <clears throat> he has a TED Talk. It's 10 minutes long. I want you to look at it later. You can give me 10 minutes later, right? To watch this TED Talk, he tore it up. He touched the lives of just countless people, including mine, when he tells his story. He was um, a fascinating artist that would um, do this uh, pointillism where he would point and he would make a myriad of these microscopic dots and he would, it would uh, form uh, something that was just inspiring and just a thing to marvel at, a thing of beauty. Because it was so detailed and meticulous, he over time developed uh, a problem. In fact, it, was, it developed permanent nerve damage within, on his right hand, his right arm, and it was... It was permanent. It wasn't going to be reversed. And it discouraged him. So, wouldn't it you? He quit. He quit as an artist. He thought that was the only option. His identity. Who am I? I'm an artist. He quit. He was visiting his neurologist one day. And he said something that would change the trajectory of his life. His neurologist looked at him and said, Dan, why don't you just embrace the shake? That arm, that pathology, that pain... It, it, it resulted in a shake, and his neurologist said, just embrace the shake. And Dan went home and changed the way, it, that changed the way he saw everything. He began to think about, what if I embrace limits? What if I truly embrace the shake? What if this weakness that I have could actually be my strength? And in this 10-minute te TED Talk, Dan shares that very reality, the reality that this was a catalyst for greater realms of creativity. And you know, we live our lives. We go on a first date. You've been on a first date recently? Or can you remember that first date? A first date? Remember the job interview? That job interview? You got one coming up? What do we do on the first date of the job interview? We do what? We highlight our strengths and hide our weaknesses. Don't act like you don't. If we're not careful, that thing that we were taught when we're young, that we really put on display on job interviews and first dates, if you're not careful, that's how you live your life. I'm going to highlight my strengths and hide my weaknesses. And grace says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. Power is perfected when we are weak. 
Why don't you embrace the shake? Why don't you let grace move you to a new place? A place maybe that you haven't ever lived and abounded in with freedom. A place where you could say, I'm not going to live like the rest of the world. because I'm going to live according to grace. I'm not going to live for an identity, trying to prove something to everybody. That ex- By the way, that's exhausting. But I'm going to live from an identity of what he says about me, and it frees me up. And when I live in grace, when I walk in grace, I can live a different way. I can learn to embrace the shake. And God can make perfection, power in the midst of my weakness. I'm going to ask our band, Micah and Abby and the whole team would come up. We're going to make music and sing a song about death when death was arrested as we close our service and have a time of prayer. I'm going to ask you today as they come, if you would bow your head and close your eyes.